This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone. My name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. Before we start, if you're listening to the show, it's because you want good sleep. You want a deep, worry-free snooze and a fresh, bright, well-rested morning. As well, someone who's struggled with that a lot, I love sharing things on the show that have helped me get that deep rest. And very, very few things have done that as well as my purple mattress. My purple mattress is soft where I want it, firm where I need it, and comfortably cool all over. As I've been traveling across the country with a purple mattress in my van, I've been through all kinds of different climates, and my bed has never let me down. It's truly a mattress that does it all. Purple is so confident that this will be the case for you too, 
that every Purple mattress comes with free shipping and returns and a risk-free 100-night trial. Personally, the first time I tried it, I knew it was going to be something that I look forward to crawling into every night for a long time. Experience the next evolution of sleep. Go to purple.com sleepy and use promo code sleepy. For a limited time, you'll get $150 off any Purple mattress order of $1,500 or more. That's purple.com sleepy, promo code sleepy. For $150 off any mattress order of $1,500 or more. Terms apply. I'll put a link in the description of this show as well. Purple has become a huge part of my temple to sleep. Make it part of yours too. I would also really like to thank all of our new patrons on Patreon.com. Robin M. Aker, Tracy Murray, Sienna O'Kane, Zev Heller, Pam Rotsky, Mara Gadget, Ashley Grant, <laughs> Who's Your Mama, Jeff and Ariana Watson, Teresa J.S., Victoria Burton, and Kara Foxley. Thank you all so deeply for donating and being a part of making the Sleepy Podcast. And for anyone who doesn't know, all these wonderful names I just read are brand new patrons on Patreon.com where you can go and support creators of the work that you admire. So if the Sleepy Podcast has maybe helped you get a better night's rest, uh, consider going to Patreon.com sleepy and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. If you donate $5 a month, you get access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send you extra exclusive poetry readings every month just for donating. And of course, no matter how much you donate, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show. So if you'd like to be a part of making the Sleepy Podcast, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, we are past 100. We're at our 101st episode. And looking back at all the comments and feedback that I've gotten over the last couple years, Nathaniel Hawthorne has been really, really popular with you all. And I will say that I think he's my favorite to read as well. Just the way he writes makes so much sense to say out loud. It's like all his stories would make fantastic stories to tell around a campfire. It's like they were written to be read to someone as they lay down in bed. So, I got this great collection of Hawthorne short stories and... Tonight, I'm going to read The Artist of the Beautiful. This is a gorgeous story. I think you're really going to like it, even though you'll probably be asleep in the first couple minutes of it. It's very, very beautiful writing. But thank you all again for sticking around past 100 episodes, and I hope this story helps you doze off into a deep, deep slumber and now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it 
feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. The Artist of the Beautiful An elderly man with his pretty daughter on his arm was passing along the street and emerged from the gloom of the cloudy evening into the light that fell across the pavement from the window of a small shop. It was a protecting window, and on the inside were suspended a variety of watches, pinchbeck, silver, and one or two of gold, all with their faces turned from the street as if churlishly disinclined to inform the wayfarers what o'clock it is. Seated within the shop, sidelong to the window, with his pale face bent earnestly over some delicate piece of mechanism on which was thrown the concentrated luster of a shade lamp, appeared a young man. What can Owen Warland be about, muttered old Peter Hovenden, himself a retired watchmaker and the former master of this same young man whose occupation he was now wondering at. What can the fellow be about? These six months past, I have never come by his shop without seeing him just as steadily at work as now. It would be a flight beyond his usual foolery to seek for the perpetual motion, and yet I know enough my old business to be certain that what he is now so busy with is no part of the machinery of a watch. Perhaps, Father, said Annie, without showing much interest in the question, Owen is inventing a new kind of timekeeper. I am sure he has ingenuity enough. Oh, child, he has not the sort of ingenuity to invent anything better than a Dutch toy, answered her father, who had formerly been put to much vexation by Owen Warland's irregular genius. A plague on such ingenuity. All the effect that ever I knew of it was to spoil the accuracy of some of the best watches in my shop. He would turn the sun out of its orbit, and derange the whole course of time, if, as I said before, his ingenuity could grasp anything bigger than a child's toy. Hush, father, he hears you, whispered Annie, pressing the old man's arm. His ears are as delicate as his feelings, and you know how easily disturbed they are. Do let us move on. So Peter Hovenden and his daughter Annie plodded on without further conversation until in a by-street of the town they found themselves passing the open door of a blacksmith shop. Within was seen the forge, now blazing up and illuminating the high and dusky roof and now confining its luster to a narrow precinct of the coal-strewn floor according as the breath of the bellows was pulled forth or again 
inhaled into its vast leathern lungs. In the intervals of brightness, it was easy to distinguish objects in remote corners of the shop and the horseshoes that hung upon the wall. In the momentary gloom, the fire seemed to be glimmering amidst the vagueness of unenclosed space. Moving about in this red glare and alternate dusk was the future of the blacksmith, well worthy to be viewed in so picturesque an aspect of light and shade, where the bright blaze struggled with the black night, as if each would have snatched his comely strength from the other. Anon he drew a white-hot bar of iron from the coals, laid it on the anvil, uplifted his arm of might, and was soon enveloped in the myriads of sparks which the strokes of his hammer scattered into the surrounding gloom. Now, that is a pleasant sight, said the old watchmaker. I know what it is to work in gold, but give me the worker in iron, after all is said and done. He spends his labor upon a reality. What say you, daughter Annie? Pray don't speak so loud, father, whispered Annie. Robert Danforth will hear you. And what if he should hear me, said Peter Hovenden. I say again, it is a good and a wholesome thing to depend on main strength and reality to earn one's bread with a bare and brawny arm of a blacksmith. A watchmaker gets his brain puzzled by his wheels within a wheel or loses his health or the nicety of his eyesight, as was my case, and finds himself at middle age or a little after, past labor at his own trade and fit for nothing else, yet too poor to live at his ease. So I say once again, Give me main strength for my money. And then, how it takes the nonsense out of a man. Did you ever hear of a blacksmith being such a fool as Owen Warland yonder? Well said, Uncle Hovenden, shouted Robert Danforth from the forge in a full, deep, merry voice that made the roof re-echo. And what says Miss Annie to that doctrine? She, I suppose, will think it genteeler business to tinker up a lady's watch than to forge a horseshoe or make a gridiron. Annie drew her father onward without giving him time to reply. But we must return to Owen Warland's shop and spend more meditation upon his history and character than either Peter Hubbenden or probably his daughter Annie, or Owen's old schoolfellow, Robert Danforth, would have thought due to so slight a subject. From the time that his little fingers could grasp a penknife, Owen had been remarkable for a delicate ingenuity, which sometimes produced pretty shapes in wood, principally figures of flowers and birds, and sometimes seemed to aim at the hidden mysteries of mechanism. But it was always for purposes of grace, and never with any mockery of the useful. He did not, like the crowd of schoolboy artisans, 
construct little windmills on the angle of a barn or watermills across the neighboring brook. Those who discovered such a peculiarity and the boy as to think it was worth their while to observe them closely, sometimes saw reason to suppose that he was attempting to imitate the beautiful movements of nature as exemplified in the flight of birds or the activity of little animals. It seemed, in fact, a new development of the love of the beautiful, such as might have made him a poet, a painter, or a sculptor, and which was as completely refined from all utilitarian coarseness as it could have been in either of the fine arts. He looked with singular distaste at the stiff and regular process of ordinary machinery. Being once carried to see a steam engine and the expectation that his intuitive comprehension of mechanical principles would be gratified, he turned pale and grew sick as if something monstrous and unnatural had been presented to him. This horror was partly owing to the size and terrible energy of the iron laborer, for the character of Owen's mind was microscopic and tended naturally to the minute, in accordance with his diminutive frame and the marvelous smallness and delicate power of his fingers. Not that his sense of beauty was thereby diminished into a sense of prettiness. A beautiful idea has no relation to size and may be as perfectly developed in a space too minute for any but microscopic investigation as within the ample verge that is measured by the arc of the rainbow. But at all events, this characteristic minuteness in his objects and accomplishments made the world even more incapable than it might otherwise have been of appreciating Owen Warland's genius. The boy's relatives saw nothing better to be done, as perhaps there was not, than to bind him apprentice to a watchmaker, hoping that his strange ingenuity might thus be regulated and put to utilitarian purposes. Peter Hovenden's opinion of his apprentice has already been expressed. He can make nothing of the lad. Owen's apprehension of the professional mysteries, it is true, was inconceivably quick. But he altogether forgot or despised the grand object of a watchmaker's business and cared no more for the measurement of time than if it had been merged into eternity. So long, however, as he remained under his old master's care, Owen's lack of sturdiness made it possible, by strict injunctions and sharp oversight, to restrain his creative eccentricity within bounds. But when his apprenticeship was served out, he had taken the little shop which Peter Hovenden's failing eyesight compelled him to relinquish. Then did people recognize how unfit a person was Owen Moreland to lead old, blind Father Time along his daily course. One of his most rational projects 
was to connect a musical operation with the machinery of his watches so that all the harsh dissonances of life might be rendered tuneful and each flitting moment fall into the abyss of the past in golden drops of harmony. If a family clock was entrusted to him for a pair, one of those tall, ancient clocks that have grown nearly allied to human nature by measuring out the lifetime of many generations, he would take upon himself to arrange a dance or funeral procession of figures across its venerable face, representing twelve mirthful or melancholy hours. Several freaks of his kind quite destroyed the young watchmaker's credit with that steady and matter-of-fact class of people who hold their opinion that time is not to be trifled with, whether considered as the medium of advancement and prosperity in this world or preparation for the next. His custom rapidly diminished. A misfortune, however, that was probably reckoned among his better accidents by Owen Warland, who was becoming more and more absorbed in a secret occupation which drew all his science and manual dexterity into himself, and likewise gave full employment to the characteristic tendencies of his genius. This pursuit had already consumed many months. After the old watchmaker and his pretty daughter had gazed at him out of the obscurity of the street, Owen Warland was seized with a fluttering of nerves which made his hand tremble too violently to proceed with such delicate labor as he was now engaged upon. It was Annie herself, murmured he. I should have known it. By this throbbing of my heart, before I heard Father's voice, ah, how it throbs. I shall scarcely be able to work again on this exquisite mechanism tonight. Annie, dearest Annie, Thou shouldest give firmness to my heart and hand and not shake them thus. For if I strive to put the very spirit of beauty into form and give it motion, it is for thy sake alone. O throbbing heart, be quiet. If my labor be thus thwarted, there will come vague and unsatisfied dreams which will leave me spiritless tomorrow. As he was endeavoring to settle himself again to his task, the shop door opened and gave admittance to no other than the stalwart figure which Peter Hovenden had paused to admire, as seen amid the light and shadow of the blacksmith shop. Robert Danforth had brought a little anvil of his own manufacture and peculiarly constructed which the young artist had recently bespoken. Owen examined the article and pronounced it fashioned according to his wish. Why, yes, said Robert Danforth, his strong voice filling the shop as with the sound of a bass viol. I consider myself equal to anything in the way of my own trade, though 
I should have made but a poor figure at yours with such a fist as this, added he, laughing, as he laid his vast hand beside the delicate one of Owen. But what then? I put more main strength into one blow of my sledgehammer than all that you have expended since you were apprentice. Is that not the truth? Very probably, answered the low and slender voice of Owen. Strength is an earthly monster. I make no pretensions to it. My force, whatever there be of it, is altogether spiritual. Well, but, Owen, what are you about? asked his old schoolfellow, still in such a hearty volume of tone that it made the artist shrink, especially as the question related to a subject so sacred as the absorbing dream of his imagination. Folks do say that you are trying to discover the perpetual motion. The perpetual motion? Nonsense, replied Owen Warland, with a movement of disgust, for he was full of little petulances. It can never be discovered. It is a dream that may delude men whose brains are mystified with matter, but not me. Besides, if such a discovery were possible, it would not be worth my while to make it only to have the secret turn to such purposes as now affected by steam and water power. I am not ambitious to be honored with the paternity of a new kind of cotton machine. That would be droll enough, cried the blacksmith, breaking out into such an uproar of laughter that Owen himself and the bell glasses on his workboard quivered in unison. No, no, Owen, no child of yours will have iron joints and sinews. Well, I won't hinder you any more. Good night, Owen, and success. And if you need assistance, so far as a downright blow of hammer upon anvil will answer the purpose, I'm your man. And with another laugh, the man of main strength left the shop. How strange it is, whispered Owen Warland to himself, leaning his head upon his hand, that all my musings, my purposes, my passion for the beautiful, my consciousness of power to create it, a finer, more ethereal power, of which this earthly giant can have no conception, all, all looks so vain and idle whenever my path is crossed by Robert Danforth. He would drive me mad where I meet him often. His hard brute force darkens and confuses the spiritual element within me, but I, too, will be strong in my own way. I will not yield to him. He took from beneath the glass a piece of minute machinery which he set in the condensed light of his lamp and looking intently at it through a magnifying glass, proceeded to operate with a delicate instrument of steel. 
In an instant, however, he fell back in his chair and clasped his hands with a look of horror on his face that made its small features as impressive as those of a giant would have been. Heaven, what have I done, exclaimed he. The vapor, the influence of that brute force, has bewildered me and obscured my perception. I have made the very stroke, the fatal stroke that I have dreaded from the first. It is all over. The toil of months, the object of my life. I am ruined. And there he sat, in strange despair, until his lamp flickered in the socket and left the artist of the beautiful in darkness. Thus it is that ideas which grow up within the imagination and appear so lovely to it and of a value beyond whatever men call valuable are exposed to be shattered and annihilated by contact with the practical. It is requisite for the ideal artist to possess a force of character that seems hardly compatible with its delicacy. He must keep his faith that in himself, while the incredulous world assails him with its utter disbelief, he must stand up against mankind and be his own sole disciple, both as respects his genius and the objects to which it is directed. For a time, Owen Warland succumbed to a severe but inevitable test. He spent a few sluggish weeks with his head so continually rested in his hands that the townspeople had scarcely an opportunity to see his countenance. When at last it was again uplifted to the light of day, a cold, dull, nameless change was perceptible upon it. In the opinion of Peter Hubbenden, however, and that order of sagacious understandings who think that life should be regulated like clockwork, with leaden weights, the alteration was entirely for the better. Owen now, indeed, applied himself to business with dogged industry. It was marvelous to witness the obtuse gravity with which he would inspect the wheels of a great old silver watch, thereby delighting the owner in whose fob it had been worn till he deemed it a portion of his own life and was accordingly jealous of its treatment. As consequence of the good report thus required, Owen Warland was invited by the proper authorities to regulate the clock in the church steeple. He succeeded so admirably in this matter of public interest that the merchants gruffly acknowledged his merits on change. The nurse whispered his praises as she gave the potion in the sick chamber. The lover blessed him at the hour of appointed interview, and the town in general thanked Owen for the punctuality of dinner time. In a word, the heavy weight upon his spirits kept everything in order, not merely within his own system, but wheresoever the iron accents of the church clock were audible. It was a circumstance 
though minute, yet characteristic of his present state, that when employed to engrave names or initials on silver spoons, he now wrote the requisite letters in the plainest possible style, omitting a variety of fanciful flourishes that had heretofore distinguished his work in this kind. One day, during the era of this happy transformation, old Peter Hovenden came to visit his former apprentice. Well, Owen, said he, I am glad to hear such good accounts of you from all quarters, and especially from the town clock yonder, which speaks in your commendation every hour of the twenty-four. Only get rid altogether of your nonsensical trash about the beautiful, which I, nor anybody else, nor yourself, Taboo, could ever understand. Only free yourself of that, and your success in life is as sure as daylight. Why, if you go this way, I should even venture to let you doctor this precious old watch of mine, though except my daughter Annie, I have nothing else so valuable in the world. I should hardly dare touch it, sir, replied Owen, in a depressed tone, for he was weighed down by his old master's presence. In time, said the latter, in time you will be capable of it. The old watchmaker, with the freedom naturally consequent on his former authority, went on inspecting the work which Owen had in hand at this moment together with other matters that were in progress. The artist, meanwhile, could scarcely lift his head. There was nothing so antipodal to his nature as this man's cold, unimaginative sagacity, by contact with which everything was converted into a dream except the densest matter of the physical world. Owen groaned in spirit, and prayed fervently to be delivered from him. But what is this? cried Peter Hovenden abruptly, taking up a dusty bell glass beneath which appeared a mechanical something as delicate and minute as the system of a butterfly's anatomy. What have we here? Owen, Owen, there is a witchcraft in these little chains and wheels and paddles See, with one pinch of my finger and thumb, I am going to deliver you from all future peril. For heaven's sake, screamed Owen Moreland, springing up with wonderful energy. As you would not drive me mad, do not touch it. The slightest pressure of your finger would ruin me forever. Ah, young man, and is it so? said the old watchmaker, looking at him with just enough of penetration to torture Owen's soul with the bitterness of worldly criticism. Well, take your own course, but I warn you again that in this small piece of mechanism lives your evil spirit. Shall I exercise him? You are my evil spirit, answered Owen, much excited. You and the hard, coarse world, 
the leaden thoughts and the despondency that you fling upon me are my clogs, else I should long ago have achieved the task that I was created for. Peter Hovenden shook his head with a mixture of contempt and indignation which mankind, of whom he was partly a representative, deemed themselves entitled to feel towards all simpletons who seek other prizes than the dusty ones along the highway. He then took his leave with an uplifted finger and a sneer upon his face that haunted the artist's dreams for many a night afterwards. At the time of his old master's visit, Owen was probably on the point of taking up the relinquished task, but by this sinister event, he was thrown back into the state whence he had been slowly emerging. But the innate tendency of his soul had only been accumulating fresh vigor during its apparent sluggishness. As the summer advanced, he almost totally relinquished his business and permitted Father Time, so far as the old gentleman was represented by the clocks and watches under his control, to stray at random through human life, making infinite confusion among the train of bewildered hours. He wasted sunshine, as people said, in wandering through the woods and fields and along the banks of streams, there, like a child, he found amusement in chasing butterflies or watching the motions of water insects. There was something truly mysterious in the intentness with which he contemplated these living playthings as they sported on the breeze or examined the structure of an imperial insect whom he had imprisoned. The chase of the butterflies was an apt emblem of the ideal pursuit in which he had spent so many golden hours, but would the beautiful idea ever be yielded to his hands like the butterfly that symbolized it? Sweet, doubtless, were these days and congenial to the artist's soul. They were full of bright conceptions which gleamed through his intellectual world as the butterflies gleamed through the outward atmosphere and were real to him. For the instant, without the toil and perplexity and many disappointments of attempting to make them visible to the sensual eye. Alas, that the artist, whether in poetry or whatever other material, may not content himself with the inward enjoyment of the beautiful, but must chase the flitting mystery beyond the verge of his ethereal domain and crush its frail being in seizing it with a material grasp. Owen Warland felt the impulse to give external reality to his ideas as irresistibly as any of the poets or painters who have arrayed the world in a dimmer and fainter beauty and perfectly copied from the richness of their visions. The night was now his time for the slow process of recreating the one idea to which all his intellectual activity referred itself. Always at the approach of dusk he stole into the town, 
locked himself within his shop and wrought his patient delicacy of touch for many hours. Sometimes he was startled by the rap of the watchman, who, when all the world should be asleep, had caught the gleam of lamplight through the crevices of Owen Warland's shutters. Daylight, to the morbid sensibility of his mind, seemed to have an intrusiveness that interfered with his pursuits. On cloudy and inclement days, therefore, he sat with his head upon his hands, muffling, as it were, his sensitive brain in a mist of indefinite musings, for it was a relief to escape from the sharp distinctness with which he was compelled to shape out his thoughts during his nightly toil. From one of these fits of torpor, he was aroused by the entrance of Annie Hovenden, who came into the shop with the freedom of a customer and also with something of the familiarity of a childish friend. He had worn a hole through her silver thimble and wanted Owen to repair it. But I don't know whether you will condescend to such a task, she said, laughing, now that you are so taken up with the notion of putting spirit into machinery. Where did you get that idea, Annie? said Owen, starting in surprise. Oh, out of my own head, answered she, and from something that I heard you say long ago when you were but a boy and I a little child. But come, will you mend this poor thimble of mine? Anything for your sake, Annie, said Owen Warland, anything, even were it to work at Robert Danforth's forge. And that would be a pretty sight, retorted Annie, glancing with imperceptible slightness at the artist's small and slender frame. Well, here's the thimble. But that is a strange idea of yours, said Owen, about the spiritualization of the matter. And then the thought stole into his mind that this young girl possessed the gift to comprehend him better than all the world besides. And what a help and strength would it be to him in his lonely toil if he could gain the sympathy of the only being whom he loved. To persons whose pursuits are insulated from the common business of life, who are either in advance of mankind or apart from it, there often comes a sensation of moral cold that makes the spirit shiver as if it had reached the frozen solitudes around the pole. What the prophet the poet, the reformer, the criminal, or any other man with human yearnings but separated from the multitude by a peculiar lot might feel. Poor Owen Warland felt. Annie, cried he, growing pale as death at the thought, how gladly would I tell you the secret of my pursuit. You, methinks, would estimate it rightly. You, I know, would hear it with a reverence that I must not expect from the harsh material world. Would I not, 
To be sure I would, replied Annie Hubbenden, lightly laughing. Come, explain to me quickly what is the meaning of this little whirligig, so delicate wrought that it might be a plaything for Queen Mob. See, I will put it in motion. Hold, exclaimed Owen, hold. Annie had but given the slightest possible touch, and with the point of a needle to the same minute portion of complicated machinery which has been more than once mentioned when the artist seized her by the wrist with a force that made her scream aloud. She was affrighted at the convulsion of intense rage and anguish that writhed across his features. The next instant, he let his head sink upon his hands. Go, Annie, murmured he. I have deceived myself and must suffer for it. I yearned for sympathy and thought and fancied and dreamed that you might give it to me. But you lack the talisman, Annie, that should admit you into my secrets. That touch has undone the toil of months and the thought of a lifetime. It was not your fault, Annie but you have ruined me. Poor Owen Warland. He had indeed erred, yet pardonably, for if any human spirit could have sufficiently reverenced the process so sacred in his eyes, it must have been a woman's. Even Annie Hubbenden, possibly, might not have disappointed him had she been enlightened by the deep intelligence of love. The artist spent the ensuing winter in a way that satisfied any persons who had hitherto retained a hopeful opinion of him, that he was, in truth, irrevocably doomed to inutility as regard to the world and to an evil destiny on his own part. The decease of a relative had put him in possession of a small inheritance, thus free from the necessity of toil and having lost the steadfast influence of a great purpose, great, at least to him, he abandoned himself to habits from which it might have been supposed the mere delicacy of his organization would have availed to secure him. But when the ethereal portion of a man of genius is obscured, the earthly part assumes an influence the more uncontrollable because the character is now thrown off the balance to which providence had so nicely adjusted it, and which in coarser natures is adjusted by some other method. Owen Warland made proof of whatever show of bliss may be found in riot. He looked at the world through the golden medium of wine and contemplated the visions that bubble up so gaily around the brim of the glass, and that people the air with shapes of pleasant madness, which so soon grow ghostly and forlorn. Even when this dismal and inevitable change had taken place, the young man might still have continued to quaff the cup of enchantments. Though its vapor did not but shroud life in gloom, and filled the gloom with specters that mocked at him. 
there was a certain irksomeness of spirit, which being real and the deepest sensation of which the artist was now conscious, was intolerable than any fantastic miseries and horrors that the abuse of wine could summon up. In the latter case, he could remember, even out of the midst of his trouble, that all was but an illusion, and the former, the heavy anguish, was his actual life. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.